Let's open our Bibles up now to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're studying this section, verses 4 through 10. This is the second, probably, of four parts to this particular study. So tonight we'll ask you to open your Bibles up again to Ephesians chapter 2, um, verses 4 through 10. In the second chapter of the Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, the apostle emphasizes and elaborates upon our position in Christ. In verses 1 through 10, he explains that we have a new position in Jesus Christ individually. He also explains in this section where we stood before we came to be in this position with Christ, and then he explains how we got to be in this position in Christ. The key idea in the first ten verses is the concept of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, unmerited favor, or if you prefer a more theological definition, all that God is free to do for you on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. So in the first ten verses, our passage that we're in the middle of studying now, these first ten verses, the key idea is grace, and we're talking about our individual relationship, our individual position in Christ. In the last half of the chapter, verses 11 through 22, Paul will outline the significance of this individual position as we, as we merge into the body of Christ in a corporate way including the significance of this corporate relationship that we have in Christ with regard to the concept of unity, unity. So in the first 10 verses, the key concept is grace. In the second, in verses 11 through 22, the key concept is unity. Now from the beginning of the, verse of the, of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul has been stressing this concept of being in Christ, of being in him by grace through faith. The believer is taken from a position of being dead in our trespasses and sins, as per Ephesians chapter 2.1, into a, a new position in Christ. This, is, this was one of the major things that Paul spoke about in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that very long sentence that could get complicated sometimes. But what he was really doing was expressing the fact that God is worthy to be praised because of all these incredible things that he's done for us. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What more could we ask, the apostle is saying, God is worthy to be praised. So we are brought into the body of Christ as individuals. But the thing that Paul wants us to remember is that we are not brought by ourselves into the body of Christ. We are brought individually, but once we get into the body of Christ, it's made up of more than just me. There are other people that are part of the body of Christ. And so that's what Paul is going to speak about in the, in the last half of the chapter. That's hence the, the key concept of unity in the last portion of the chapter. We've all entered into this special relationship with God. All of us have entered into this. Paul terms it being in Christ. We've, we've entered it in, in, into it in the same way, by grace through faith. Every single person that's in the body of Christ has entered into the body of Christ by grace through faith. Therefore, since none of us earned or deserved our being in that position in the body of Christ, none of us earned or deserved our salvation, since it is all of grace, Paul will tell us that we have the responsibility to then live in unity with one another. Now, I want you to note this, and, and please note it well, because our Lord spoke of unity also in John chapter 17, did he not? And when Jesus speaks of unity in the body of Christ, he insists that this unity be within the sphere of the truth. Set them apart. May they be just as we are, Jesus says, set apart in truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And this is a, a challenge, in the, in the world in which we live, I think it's always been a challenge in the Christian community from day one. 
as so many in the Christian family. And we are in one big Christian family, whether we want to admit that or not. But so many in the Christian family show so little interest in the truth. And that makes the whole idea of unity rather challenging. Because Paul speaks of unity because we're all saved in the same way. Jesus spoke of unity, though, unity that would be centered around and revolve around the truth. So how are we going to have unity within the body of Christ when so many of us are not really interested in truth? It does present a problem. It reminds me of the minefield that is uh, political discussion at a Thanksgiving dinner with family. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to negotiate, but for civility's sake, we seem to be able to do that because we realize we're all part of the family. And even though there may be disagreements about something as passionate as that, there is still a level at which we can still have fellowship with one another and a level at which civil discussion takes place and civil interaction with one another. It doesn't necessarily mean that we can see it. And just because Aunt Martha says, well, I don't think salvation is by grace through faith at all. It doesn't mean we say, okay, well, if that's what you believe, then that's, that's fine. Your view is equally as valid as my view. That's not what we're talking about at all, but we are talking about civilities. When I listen to individuals, and I, and I have them in my periphery as well, who are very likely Christian, I don't really question their salvation, but they, ele they elevate Mary in their discussions and in their posts on Facebook and in their email discussions, when they elevate Mary to a position of the co-redeemer with Christ, and at least by the things that they write, come very close, dangerously close to worshiping Mary, well, that's, that's difficult, because they're, they're very dangerously close to participating in idolatry. And that's the very first one of the commandments to avoid. Uh, I can't condone that. And Christ, I, I can't tell you, in fact, how offensive that is to me personally as one who's been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross not on the basis of the finished work of Mary now I feel for Mary Mary has been elevated to a position even biblically as, as the most blessed among women because of what she was able to do but not to a position of co-redeemer Th this is a major thing this isn't minor it's a major thing but I'm still called upon to have fellowship with those that are in my Christian family that truly are in my Christian family, even if they hold so offensive of a view as that. I must still fellowship with that person to the degree that we are in agreement about something. And if I'm in the body of Christ with somebody, I'm in at least in agreement about something. Perhaps I picked a bad idea about the elevation of Mary because it's, you're getting real borderline there. But I do believe that there are people that would hold to that, that at some point in their life have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life by grace through faith coming to Christ. So if they've done that, they are my brother and they are my sister in Christ. And, and so there is a, there's a level of civility that I need to have. God has to, well, I would say God has to. This, this is an, uh, probably the wrong, wrong way of putting that. But, but God certainly ha has a lot of patience with us as well, um, we, there is a certain fellowship that we all enjoy with God by being in virtue of this sphere that Paul calls, calls being in Christ, being in him. 
everyone that's in that sphere is part of the family of God. Just like everyone sitting at your Thanksgiving table, to use the family illustration, is part of your family. Now, there may be some that have, for why, I guess, uh, not really sure, are called the black sheep of the family. There's always some that, are, that fit that category. I'm not really sure how they became to be called that, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, there's always some there that are going to make the Thanksgiving dinner a bit uncomfortable, but they're still part of the family. And so in a, in a sense, and, and listen carefully to this, this may be new to you, but in a sense there is fellowship that we have with our Creator just by being, just by virtue of the fact that we're in Christ. There, there's fellowship there. But there's also a different kind of fellowship, the fellowship that John speaks about in his first epistle. That kind of fellowship, the fellowship that Peter says that, or not Peter, that John says that they have with God and, and that he wants us to have with them and therefore by, by way of extension with God as well. There's that close, intimate, personal koinonia type of fellowship that God wants us to have. And it's that kind of fellowship. If we're going to have that kind of fellowship, then we've got to be walking in the same direction that God is walking. And the, the closeness will be reflected by the fact that we recognize when we get off that track and we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us. So there is a, there is a, it's a sense of fellowship, if you want to use that word, just by virtue of being in the body of Christ. There is a fellowship you have with God by being in his family. This may be a, a slight tweak from what some of you um, have, have thought in the past. It's, a, it's an advancement on some of my uh, understanding as well. So, so don't let that one pass by you too quickly. <laughs> um, think about that for a minute. But there's also a closeness, an intimacy that we have with God when we're walking in the same direction with him. Remember, Enoch walked with God. Noah walks with God. There's something even more special than just being simply in God's family. But if you're in God's family, you're in God's family. In the same way that those people sitting around your table at Thanksgiving, you may have very little in common with them right now, but they're still part of your genetic family. So... Paul is going to stress this quite a bit at the end of the chapter. The, the illustration is not going to be family in Turkey. It's going to be the, the Jewish and Gentile situation in Ephesus. But we'll, we'll hold off any more comment on that until we get to that particular section. Paul starts off in the beginning of chapter 3 by letting us know that, making a, almost a statement, before we can ever really appreciate grace, we've got to come to grips with where we, are, where we were in our old position in Christ. Before we came to Christ, we weren't God's buddies. We weren't just neutral. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So before we can come to grips with grace, we've got to, we've got to know where we were in this whole situation. And we were, in, uh, we were in big, big trouble. Our old position was one of death, not just neutrality, but death. So Paul makes no attempt to introduce this concept of grace that we studied last week and we will consider it again these next several weeks until he's made the desperate condition known and very clear that all human beings find themselves in prior to salvation. That has to come first. Then in verse 4, after these first three verses where we're, we find ourselves in a desperate situation, then in verse 4, two of the sweetest words in this whole epistle, but God. We were dead but God. We were dead, but God. We were sinful, but God. We were helpless, but God. We were hopeless, but God. What a contrast. But God being rich in mercy. You see, we were as lost as we could be. 
not just a little lost, not just less lost than someone else. We were all as lost as we could be, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. After, the verses after this describe this kind of love that God had. And, and God here is described as being rich in mercy. Here, here mercy and love are tied together. It's very reminiscent of something like, uh, oh, John 3.16, For God loved the world so much. He loved the world like this. And that's what, that's, uh, what, what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, an incredible contrast to the first three verses, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And it's, it was prayed a couple times tonight. We just, God's love for us is baffling. It truly is. Um, if, if in your soul you can say, I understand why he loved me. You know, <laughs> I don't understand why he loves her. But I really understand why he, why he would love me. Because, you know, I've got some flaws. I have some negative characteristics, some ne- negative character traits that we don't even want to call sin or degeneracy, but... We see it in somebody else, but we can almost understand why he'd love me. Listen, my friends, before we came to Christ, we were his enemies. So it is, it is something of an enigma, I think, sometimes. In the Bible, I'm sorry, in, the, in extra-biblical literature, extra-biblical literature, not in the Bible itself, uh, but in Greek, ancient Greek literature, the term mercy was often used to describe an emotional concern for someone who was undeservedly suffering. But we can't say that about the way Paul is using the idea of mercy here because there's no doubt that the disaster that we find ourselves in is one of our own manufacture, being dead in our trespasses and sins. Actually, in verse 1, it's your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 5, Paul brings everybody into it. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Paul is not preaching to people. He's communicating with them. And we need, we need to be careful about this sometimes as those who may teach the word from time to time. People need to understand that you realize that you're just as fallen, you were just as fallen as they were before salvation. You have a sin nature just like they do. Uh, it's not... It's not that effective when a pastor gets up and um, and sh- offers some shoes shuffling, shoulders rounded, um, false humility every time they they preach. Let, let's just get it. If, if I could just say it this this one time, we're we're all in the same boat. Okay, I have a sin nature. You have a sin nature. Uh, I have I have sinful patterns. You have sinful patterns. Okay, we we're kind of got past that now. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. Then he includes himself. In verse 5, but we, but we, when we were dead in our transgressions, and then Paul is going to outline three things that happen, three things that happen. We were made alive together with Christ, we were raised up with him, and we were seated with him. We were made alive together with him, we were raised up with him, and we were seated with him. So our old position was death, our new position is being alive. We have life. Um, this is personal. These verses reveal a positional relationship with Christ, do they not? But not simply a positional relationship, but a personal relationship with 
God. It's beyond me why anybody can read the Bible and think that God's relationship with us is impersonal in any way. Even when he's pouring his discipline out upon us, it's personal. It's very personal. So I, I would never use the word impersonal in the same sentence with God and his relationship with man. It's very, very personal, even if you're not walking in fellowship with him. It's still personal. And so we see these three things. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, and he seated us with him. And then at the last part of verse 5, we went over this incredibly fascinating discussion that I, that I got so much incredible feedback about that you wanted to go over it one more time. So I'm going to do that again in case, um, in case you missed it last time. I'm going to do it very quickly this time, though. But, but this, this word for you have been saved um, at the end of verse 5 is actually a, a perfect participle. And the only, the only point that I want you to, to remember that i really like for you to carry from this point is, is there's a reason why some Bibles translate like this, you have been saved. Other Bibles translate it, you are saved. And what I'm trying to tell you is both of them are legitimate because both of them are just emphasizing a different aspect of this perfect participle. In the, in the perfect participle, the action is completed in the past. Hence the translation in some Bibles, you have been saved. It's completed in the past with the results that continue up to the present time. Hence the translation in some Bibles, you are saved. Okay, you, you see the point of that discussion? I'm going to try to do it in 30 seconds tonight. You have been saved in the past. You're saved right now. Now, the only thing that we wanted to say from a theological standpoint is that it's going too far with the Greek language to, to translate this, you have been saved in the past, and since it's a perfect tense, with the result that you stand saved forever. Okay? Now, that's a true biblical concept. Okay? True, as, as true as it can be, but there are plenty of other ways to validate that. It's improper to do that by virtue of the Greek perfect participle. Okay? It just doesn't work that way, and we don't need it to be that way. Uh, for this to all be a, a wonderful thing. And certainly I affirm the doctrine of eternal security uh, now, tomorrow, and uh, all day and all night long I can affirm that, and we can argue it, with, but I would never have to argue it based upon the perfect participle. We don't need to do that. Now, verse 7, our passage that I don't want to focus upon tonight. Now, why did he do all this? What, what was the purpose of him saving us by grace through faith, of making us alive together with Christ, raising us up with him, seating us with him, this positional yet personal relationship. Why did this take place? This is going to knock your socks off when you really consider the implications of verse 7. Usually we're such a hurry to get to verses 8 and 9 that somehow verse 7 gets passed. And I, and I almost did it tonight too because I really wanted to get to verses 8 and 9 and then do verse 10 next week. But I decided to stop with verse 7 so you would you'd really appreciate the impact of what's going on here. Verse 7, the purpose. This is a purpose statement. Why did all this take place? Why did he make us alive together with Christ? In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, let that sink in. Several years back, I wasn't able to go. But my wife, Cindy, made a trip to Texas A&M with... I think all three of my kids, they were, they were looking at the campus. And one of the things that the boys were so impressed with was the athletic department. Big surprise. Well, the, the Texas A&M athletic department, although I've never been in it, I've had this described to me in such detail, I think I can describe it to you. It's a, it's a building that they've spent a lot of money on, incredible 
woodwork on the walls, and they've got a trophy case there. A trophy case is with all these, these massive number of trophies that the Texas A&M Athletic Department has earned over the last, um, I guess, almost 100 years or so that they've been in existence. And then at the center, at least maybe not geographically, but in, in terms of the center of attention is, uh, I believe, John David Crow's Heisman Trophy that he won way back with, with Texas A&M. And that's kind of the, the centerpiece of their whole, they don't just have a trophy case, it's a trophy room. And the, these are the, the relics, if you will. But, but this is a demonstration of what has happened in the past at Texas A&M in their, in their athletic department. And these are, these are symbolic of the effort that's been made in the past. And so it's, it's as if when you come into this university, the university is in a sense because they made such a big deal of this. And, and rightly so. I have no problem with it because it's all private money. The, the, that, that particular area was funded by private donations from the, from the 12th Man Foundation, as far as I know. Uh, but, but they're presenting this to you. This is the excellence of Texas A&M University Athletic Department. You, you see that? It's almost like there's a trophy that they're holding up to the, to the visitor and say, here's who we are athletically. And this is what happens when you give maximum effort and you recruit the right people and you, you play as hard as you can. This is it. It's, it's as if the, the university is lifting up this trophy and showing you what their athletic department is all, is all about. This verse is going to tell us that you, you and all of us here and me, we are the trophy of God's grace. That he is going to forever lift up to all of his creation to demonstrate his own excellence, his own goodness, his own kindness, in his own grace, for now and forevermore, for all of the ages. And this isn't just the eschatological ages that will occur from now on on planet Earth. This is even into eternity, the second Peter kind of eternity, where, the new, where there's a new heavens and a new earth. Forever and forever and forever and forever, we will be held up as the trophy of God's grace. You... And I are that Heisman Trophy that's in the middle, that's in the center, that when anybody comes and visits A&M, this is the kind of excellence that A&M enjoys. In eternity, when God wants to demonstrate how kind he is, his excellence, his grace, you know what he's going to do? He's going to go look at them. Just take a look at them. Now, we're all going to be... There look, there's no them, there's no outsiders to look at it, but, but, I, but I hope you see the, the teaching metaphor that Paul is using here. Look at it again now with that in mind and order that in the ages to come. And again, that's not just, that's not just simply in, in the tribulation or in the millennial kingdom of the future. Or, uh, that's, not, that's not just simply restricted to that. The ages to come here is more inclusive of the entirety of the future of the existence of you and me. Now, God's always been in existence. So this, this phrase is, is, is more re- related to us. He might show. Now, who's he showing it to? He's showing it to you and me. There are people that have looked at this verse, uh, good people, uh, solid scholars, but they've looked at this verse and, and maybe a couple like it, and they are, they are, they have come to the conclusion that it's Satan that's being demonstrated. 
that for the ages to come, that God is by virtue of you and me, he's going to show Satan, look, I'm fair. Look, I'm loving. Look, I'm kind. As if God had to prove himself to Satan. And that's, that's really not the case. He's not under compulsion to demonstrate to anyone outside of himself the proof of his grace or his goodness as if he was undergoing some sort of cosmic trial. That's not what this passage is speaking about. Even though some have seen it, maybe Satan is objecting to God's grace and saying you're not really fair, and God is saying, well, here's my exhibit A. My exhibit A are these church-aged believers. God doesn't have to prove to anybody that he's indeed good or that he's indeed kind. Much uh, Of all people, of all beings, he doesn't have to prove anything to Satan. Satan is owed nothing. I think that's a hangover. That goes all the way back to that ransom theory hangover that's, that was popular in the past, but as church history went on, it, it really kind of lost favor. So um, this is a demonstration of grace. It's not a proving of God's innocence. Do you see what I mean? We don't, we don't want to take this down a notch by saying God is just showing everybody that he's not bad, that he was really fair. In eternity, we're going to get the point. And there really will be no discussion about it then. But, you know, we can have somewhat of a discussion about it even now, though. Because even now, there are believers that, that really, whether they ever express it or not, and some express it, some express it on the radio, some express it in pulpits, that, that really God is somehow unfair. Because I've asked him for something, and he didn't give it to me, so I'm going to get mad at God. Now, if you get mad at God, you're saying that you're saying at some level God is being unfair to you, that God is somehow wrong, or that you're totally irrational, unreasonable, and insane. Because if God hadn't done anything wrong, then who are you to get mad at Him? You see the point. So, at some level, we're saying God did something wrong, and so even now we can look at a passage like this and and say that the very fact that you're in the body of Christ, the very fact that He saved you by His grace through faith. Well, that pretty much says it all already. Yeah, maybe you didn't get that brand new house that you wanted. Maybe you didn't get that new car. But that doesn't mean God is less than kind. The fact that you're saved is, is a testimony for all the ages of his, the riches of his grace and of his kindness. Let's make it a little bit more personal. Maybe a little bit more difficult. Maybe it's not a house or a car that you were praying for. Maybe it was the recovery of a loved one from a terrible disease. And you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and, and God still took that person home. And you're saying, well, God, I prayed. Why didn't you heal her? You could have. Why didn't you? Now, as long as you're just asking why or how long, then you're in the company of the prophets and you're okay. But don't get sassy with God and imply that God did something wrong. Now, by not healing your mother, your father, your sister, your child. Here we have a demonstration forever of his grace and kindness. Like the hymn says in a little bit of a different context, what more can he say than to you who he has said? What more can he do to show you that he's good and he's kind besides what he's already done in the death of his son on the cross? That's why the perpetual reminder of the Lord's table is so important in Christianity. 
we, our minds do tend to wander, become self-focused. We need to get our focus off of ourselves and what he has done for us that, that he didn't have to do. So believe me, whether it's in the future or whether it's now, he's demonstrating his grace. He's not trying to prove his innocence. That is so human-like for us to, to say that God needs to prove his innocence to me. No, that's, uh, that's still very Satan-like. That's still rebellious. That's rebelliousness on the part of our hearts. We don't want to do that. The work of kindness that is referred to in this verse, the riches of his grace in kindness, the work of kindness in Christ refers to the entirety of the salvation process brought about by him and in him and not by us. Again, are you starting to see his Paul's point before he ever gets to that very famous phrase, for by grace you've been saved through faith? Yes, that's the culmination of the setting the table for that phrase. God has demonstrated that he's kind and he's good and he's loving and he's, and he's full of grace and mercy, as he's already used that term before, just by virtue of the fact that he saved our sorry tales. Can I just be blunt with you? Just by the virtue of he took us when we were who we were and saved us, he's already shown us his grace, and his kindness. And this kindness is reflective of the entirety of the saving process, at least in context. Our own efforts are rejected by God. It's, it's totally insufficient. There's another Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We, we come to God with the empty hands of faith. We don't bring our money. We don't bring our time. We don't bring our promise to be better people. We come empty-handed. And if we don't come empty-handed, we don't come at all. And so this is all wrapped up in this idea of his kindness toward us in Christ. You and I, you and I forever will be, we are and forever will be trophies of God's grace. He is lifting us up both now and, in, and will forever as, as a demonstration of who he is and how good he is and how wonderful he is and how rich in mercy and grace he is and how kind he is. You are God's trophy. Heavenly Father, we, we are humbled by this. We've already learned in this text, it humbled us before that that you consider us to be your inheritance, as well as giving us an inheritance. We are your inheritance. Oh, how you love us. And we're also forever going to be the demonstration of your grace. Oh, how you love us. And we can do nothing more than really say thank you for it. So we'll do that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.